Um, we're going to um, keep looking at the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards um, tonight. We've been looking the last couple of weeks at resolutions one, two, and four. And this is the last week I want to be able to share from these um, three resolutions, um, these ideas we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Let me first, um, Doug, can we get the um, PowerPoint? Um, when, as we begin, I want to read those first. I've actually had a couple of people ask me about doing or finding these in a little bit more modern English. You know, Jonathan Edwards lived over 300 years ago, and so the writing, it's understandable, but you might take you a minute to kind of think through and process what he's saying. And uh, I've been looking online for a sort of modern updates to the language. And I, I found some, but not all. And uh, I actually had... Um, Someone last week suggested maybe I should write my own. And so maybe he said, put it in the NIV version. So I've tried my hand at that, and the, I'm going I'm to share those tonight. And hopefully they are a faithful rendition, and you can give me some feedback maybe. Um, Wade suggested I put these uh, resolutions and these notes into a book form when I'm done. So maybe that would be a way to, to bless us. But let's... Um, Let's look at these just to remind ourselves what he said. This will be the layman translation of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. Number one, I resolve to do whatever I think most glorifies God and most benefits me for the rest of my life without regard to time, whether that be now in the present or far into eternity. And then continuing on, he says, I resolve to do whatever I think is my duty and what most benefits mankind in general. I resolve to do so no matter what difficulties I face, how many difficulties I face, or how great a difficulty I face. And then resolution number two, I resolve to continually seek out new ways and plans to fulfill the previous re- resolution. And then resolution number four, I resolve not to do anything, whether inwardly or outwardly, unless it glorifies God. I also resolve not to be involved in or experience anything unless it glorifies God, if I can possibly help it. As we were thinking about those, I boiled those down into three principles or three ideas, three thoughts, three aspects I think we can think about and mull over. We spent the last two weeks considering the first of these points. And that the first principle from these resolutions is that I will live my life for the glory of God no matter what. I will live my life for the glory of God, no matter what. We kind of broke that down into three subparts. The first, that the whole endeavor of my life will be to pursue God's glory. The whole, so all of my life, the main focus, the main goal, is to pursue the glory of God. And we said that there are three reasons for that. One, God's nature demands that we glorify Him. Secondly, that God created us to glorify Him. And then thirdly, God redeemed us as his specially chosen people, redeemed, saved people. He has uh, given to us this calling for the purpose of glorifying him. We then said, point number two, that I must resist everything that doesn't glorify God. So we want to do what glorifies God. That's sort of the positive element, Right. Those things that God wants us to do, I, I want to do. That's what I want to pursue. But the flip side of that is, I don't want to do anything that doesn't glorify God. Okay? I want to abstain from those things. I want to reject those things. I want to shun those things in my life. 
And then the third aspect of this living my life for the glory of God no matter what is that if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to pursue God's glory, it requires my total commitment. And we said that that total commitment requires sacrifice. Almost makes me think, as I think about this today, almost makes me think of athletics, right? If you're a football player, what do you want to achieve as a football player? You want to win games. You want to score points. You want to be the best player on your team. You want to have the most touchdown passes. You want to have the most yards run. You want to have the most interceptions, the most tackles. But in order to be the best player, what do you have to do to achieve that? You have to make a lot of sacrifices, right? You have to, you have to watch what you eat. You have to exercise. You have to do the drills. You have to give yourself completely to those drills. You have to learn the playbook. You have to be at every practice. There are sacrifices that you have to make. You have to choose to do, you have to choose not to do certain things in order to do this thing. So it requires a sacrifice in your end. And the same thing is true that if we're going to really give our total commitment to glorifying God, then it means we're going to have to sacrifice. Well, what kind of sacrifices? Well, our time. We have to put time, invest our time into pursuing things that will bring God's glory. It's going to require us to make sacrifices with regard to our, our effort, our strength, uh, our attention. We're going to have to endure hardships. That part of this is going to require us to endure great difficulties in trying to pursue the glory of God. It's going to require us to evaluate and to, and to think and meditate, be self-reflective, self-aware of how I can bring glory to God. Not just simply go through the motions of it, not just simply check things off a box, check boxes off a list, but really to think, how can I honor God in this thing that he wants me to do? All right, so that was the first principle. I will live my life for the glory of God no matter what. We've looked at those three sub-points the last couple of weeks. We're moving on tonight to number two, second aspect from these uh, first three resolutions. Number two, when I pursue God's glory, I will experience spiritual good and satisfaction. When I pursue God's glory, I will experience spiritual good and satisfaction. So again, going back to resolution number one, I will do whatever I think most of the glory of God and my own good. Or as Edward says, my own good profit and pleasure. So God's glory and my good are not two separate things. They're not mutually exclusive. It's not that I have one but not the other. They are two things. Of the, they're, they're both linked together. They're the same piece. That if I pursue God's glory, I will also at the same time be pursuing and experiencing my good profit and pleasure. If we go back to the Westminster Catechism for a minute, the first question of the Westminster Catechism, what is the chief end of man, right? Man's chief end is to glorify God, which is what we're called to do, and what? And enjoy Him forever. And those things are not two separate things, but they are linked together. They're of the same piece. They're the same unit. That if I'm going to glorify God, when I do that, I'm also going to enjoy Him forever. I'm going to receive that which is the best for me, that which is of my, for my own spiritual good and my own spiritual satisfaction. The writer of Psalm, Psalm 37, verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, the desires of your heart are not somehow disconnected from delighting in the Lord. Those two things, again, are together, right? It's not that I can um, delight myself in the Lord and then experience all worldly goodness. 
right? God would not bless us with worldliness. God would not bless us with anything that is not of Him or from Him. So if I'm going to delight in God, delighting in God is going to bring about the desires of my heart. Not my selfish heart, not my worldly heart, but a heart that desires God and desires what He wants for me. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9 says, What what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. We can't even conceive of what God designs for us. What He designs for us, for our good and for our delight, is far better than anything that we could procure for ourselves. But to receive the good that God has prepared for for us, we must love Him. We must glorify Him. We must give Him our total devotion. How does God's glory bring about our spiritual good and satisfaction? There's two ways. First, when we glorify God, His purposes are accomplished in our lives. Okay? When we glorify God, His purposes are accomplished in our lives. That means that the best that God would give to us, we receive from Himself. When He is at work in us, He gives us the best He has to offer. When His purposes are accomplished in us, we receive His ultimate good. God is good toward His people. He delights in doing good toward His people. He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. He has promised to conform us to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, which is, of course, the best and highest possible outcome for us. The best, very best thing that God would give to us is Himself. The very best thing that God would do for us is to make us like His own Son, His beloved Son, the one in whom He most delights. So God is working His spiritual good in us as He promised us in the Gospel. And that spiritual work that He works in us brings us delight and satisfaction in God because He is giving us His very best. He is doing for us His very best. So when we obey God's commands, then His rewards, His blessings, His goodness is already rooted into the fabric of the commands because His rewards, His blessings, and His goodness occur when we obey Him. So it's not that God gives us a reward for doing right, right? It's not a tit-for-tat thing. God says, if you obey me, then I'm going to give you this reward. But the reward is in the obedience of the thing He tells us to do, right? So if my children are thirsty, right? One of my sons comes to me and says, I'm thirsty. I may give them the command, go turn on the faucet. Now, when they turn on the, the faucet, it's not that I'm giving water as the reward for doing the, uh, the act of obedience. They're receiving the blessing in doing the command, right? Because what happens when they turn on the spigot? The water comes out. It's rooted into the, the, the command that I've given them. The blessing comes in the doing of the command. The, 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 they're all kind of woven together. So God doesn't reward us for obedience because we've done the right thing, but God's reward is released in the obedience. Okay? In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, he says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all, your, all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. So God here is again saying, You need to obey Me. Follow after My ways because when you do... The blessing is in the thing that I've told you to do. You're going to delight in what I have given you to do. All right, so how does God's glory bring about our spiritual good and satisfaction? Number one, His purposes are accomplished 
in our lives. Secondly, God's glory draws us up into communion with God. Again, what's the best thing that God can give to us? It is himself. God does not receive glory from us as one who is aloof or pretentious. If you really want to see a, a strong contrast between the God of the Bible and all other world religions, read the other ancient myths. Read the myths of Greece and Babylon and Egypt. And those gods were aloof. They were inattentive. They were pretentious. They were changing their minds. They were capricious. One moment they, they could do good for you. One moment they would turn away from you. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is constant. And what he desires to give his people is himself. So he calls us to come to him and to delight in him and to draw near to him and to commune with him. And when we do, he gives of himself to us. He created us and redeemed us in order to commune with him. So complete delight and satisfaction can be found in communing with God. Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And Psalm 40, verse 16. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. So when I pursue God's glory, I will experience spiritual good and satisfaction. Now, it's not a means to an end, but it is the blessing, it's the reward of walking with God. This is what God does for his people. All right, the last thought to consider in these um, first three resolutions, that the pursuit of God's glory benefits the world. The pursuit of God's glory benefits the world. Okay? It benefits us. My spiritual good and satisfaction are found in communing with God and honoring him. But the pursuit of God's glory also benefits the world. And this is tucked into resolution number one. I don't know if I have it back up there or not. But Edward said it this way, that he resolved to do whatever he thinks most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. As he pursued God's glory, he understood that whatever it is he did would also have a benefit for people in general, people around him. And I think he's thinking here about more than just the, the, the church. He's thinking here even about the world, non-Christians. Glorifying God includes doing what is good for the world. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So whatever we do unto God is good. The beneficiaries of glorifying God are not just us, but also the world. Glorifying God means will mean doing good to the world. Now, that doesn't mean the world will like it. That's a difference, right? When we glorify God, it has benefit on other people, but it doesn't mean that the world or those people are going to like it. In fact, just the opposite. They will probably hate it because they hate God. They delight in their rebellion. They will probably reject the good and advantageous things that we do for them as we are pursuing the glory of God. In John chapter 3, verse 19 through 21, Jesus gives a commentary on the spiritual state of the world, the spiritual condition of the world. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light 
so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. So there's a sense in which, just like, I know I've used the illustration before, just like in the middle of the night when you turn the lights on, right? If there's bugs there, what do the bugs do when the lights come on? They scurry for the darkness, right? They don't like the light. They don't want to be in the light. They don't want their deeds to be exposed. They don't want you to come and, you know, kill them. And the same thing is true for the spiritually dark, the spiritual darkness, right? People live in spiritual darkness. They don't want to be in the light. They don't want the light to expose their evil deeds, and so they go back to the darkness. And so they rail against God, and they hate all the good ways in which God blesses them when we are pursuing his glory. But that, doesn't, that should not deter us, right? Just because the world hates God and hates the good that God would do for them, he has left us in the world to be a witness for him, right? He has left a testimony, he has left a witness in the world for their benefit. Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In Acts chapter 14, there's a story where Paul and Barnabas go into a town. I think it was Lystra. They went to Lystra. And they, I think they healed somebody that was there and began to preach the gospel. And the Greeks, the Gentiles in that town, thought that they were the Greek god Zeus and his messenger god Mercury. Not Mercury. Hermes. And so they wanted to, to, to praise and worship these Greek gods. And Paul says, no, you don't do that. And he begins to uh, profess Christ. He begins to preach the gospel to them. And they hated them. They, they, the response was a hatred because they wanted to believe that these were their beloved Greek gods. And so as Paul continues to, to preach and to uh, try to persuade them to believe in Christ, he says this, that he says that God did not leave himself without witness. For he did good to you by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. In other words, God continues to keep his people in the world to be a witness to the world. They may reject that, but God still has sovereign plans, right? He is still drawing the lost to himself. He is still seeking to save those who are unconverted. He is seeking to, 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 to rescue and to save the lost. And so that is why we must continue to do the things that are for God's glory, because it is by that that God blesses the world and brings them to the knowledge of salvation, brings them to the light of the truth. So if we are pursuing God's glory, it will have a positive impact, a positive benefit to mankind, even if we can't see it immediately. So with that in mind, then, the Christian walk has one aim, which is to glorify God every day in every way. We glorify God in doing what we ought to do and not doing what we ought not to do. And that requires a total commitment that will involve from us sacrifice, devoting our time and effort, enduring hardships that confront us, and giving constant consideration to the many ways that we can and should glorify God. When we glorify God, we will experience the good that God has designed for us and the delight and satisfaction that can only be found in Him. So I pray that we would resolve ourselves, as Jonathan Edwards did, to our chief aim. 
that I will do whatever I think glorifies God the most and will bring me spiritual satisfaction and spiritual good. And I pray that we would do this without reservation, without hesitation, without limitation, but with a total commitment using the resources that God has given us to succeed. Let's take a moment to pray. And just I'm going to give us just a quiet moment, maybe just to reflect upon uh, things that were said. Maybe there's something that sticks in your mind. You want to uh, pray about it, meditate upon it. But let's just take a moment of, of quietness to, to meditate and think upon uh, what God has shared tonight with us um, from uh, Edwards and from his word. And then uh, I'll, I'll lead us in prayer. Lord, we confess that you are a great God. You are the God who sits enthroned upon the clouds. You're the God who created the heavens and the earth by the word of his power. You are the God who is sovereign over all things, over all creation, over all peoples, over kingdoms and nations, over the spiritual realm. There is no one at all like you. And like David in Psalm 8, we ask ourselves, what are we that you would be mindful of us? What are we that you would do good for us, Lord, by saving us from our sins and bringing us into a relationship with you? Who are we that you would invite to come before your throne and to commune with you, to have a relationship with you, to delight in you, the God of the universe, who are we that you would share yourself with us, that you would pour out your goodness upon us, that you would not only help us to delight in you, but that you would give to us the desires of our heart, that we would rejoice and take pleasure in yourself, the ultimate good that you could give to us. We're thankful tonight. I pray that we would be thankful, Lord, for what you have done. And I pray that we would be motivated, Lord, to live for you. Our lives are not our own. We've been bought with a great price. We want to devote ourselves fully to your glory, to honoring your name, to seeing you exalted and magnified. And we pray that when we do, that we would be satisfied, that we would delight and we would rejoice and we would experience the fullness, Lord, of the blessing that you would offer to us and that that goodness would also come to the world, that the world may see your goodness, Lord, that they would not thrash against it, that they would submit to it and find your glorious salvation. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.